Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the LSE for this online event on financial strains, health pressures, Syria, Somalia and the COVID-19 impact. This event is part of LSE's public event series, COVID-19, the policy response, and the event was organised by this, the Conflict and Civil Society Research Unit. My name is Jessica Watkins. I'm a research officer at the LSE Middle East Centre, where I work on the DFID sponsored conflict research programme. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome with me today my panel of five fellow members of the Conflict Research Programme. Um, we have Reem Turkmani, Mazen Gareba, Nisan Majid, Kharif Abdurrahman and Alex Deval. Um, just to give you a brief introduction to the speakers today, Reem Turkmani is the Research Director for the Syria Conflict Research Programme and the Principal Investigator of the research project Legitimacy and Citizenship in the Arab World Project. Her research team recently won a pilot research fund that the LSE made available for research on COVID-19. Mazen Ghreba is the research manager at the Governance and Development Research Centre in Beirut, Lebanon, which partners with the CRP Syria team. His work focuses on local governance, legitimacy and public policy, and he's currently working on a paper about the institutional impacts of COVID-19 in Syria, um, which will be the main focus of his presentation today. Nisar is the research director for the CRP in Somalia. He began working in Somalia in the late 1990s, and since then he's worked across the Somali territories on the Horn of Africa, as well as within the Somali diaspora in the UK. Uh, he authored in 2017 the book Somalia Famine, Competing Imperatives, Collective Failures, 2011-2012, and he joined the LSE Conflict Research Programme in 2018. Um, Khalif Abdurrahman is a senior field researcher at the LSE's conflict research program for Somalia. He's conducted research across the Somali region for at least seven years, including for Tufts University, the Rift Valley Institute and the Overseas Development Institute. And finally, Alex Deval is the director of the World Peace Foundation and program research director of the conflict research program or CRP. He's an expert on Sudan, South Sudan and the Horn of Africa, with particular reference to the humanitarian crisis and response, conflict, mediation and peace building. Um, so I'd like to welcome warmly my panel today. Um, the uh, running order will be Reem and Mazin talking first on Syria, followed by Nisar um, Khalif uh, on Somalia and finally with Alex raising some of the broader questions applying to all of the panellists. Um, I know that there have been some comments about representation on the Somali part of the panel um, on Twitter before the event, and um, I know that Nisar would like to address these when he speaks, so I'll, I'll leave it to him. Um, as usual, there is a chance for you to put your questions to the panel after they're presented, and we really invite you to do this. Um, if you would like to submit a question, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. So questions will be submitted to me, and I will pose as many as I, I, I can to the speakers. Um, please include your name and your affiliation. And we're very keen to hear from our students and alumni and incoming students as well. Um, so for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE COVID-19. Um, and just to let you know, this online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. 
Um, so I think we're we're ready to kick off. And uh, without further ado, I think we're starting with Reem. So I'm going to hand it to, over to you. Uh, thank you, Jessica, and thank you, everyone, for joining us this afternoon, despite that we are all tired, I'm sure, of listening uh, to more news and talks about COVID-19. Uh, I would also like to thank the LSE Research for uh, making available very swiftly a research grant for all this research team to start pilot research on COVID-19 policy. And this is what made us able to do the research that we're talking about uh, today. And because of this grant that we won, we're able also to contract field researchers and doctors who are working on the ground to work on us in producing our uh, policy-oriented research. Now, on the outset, the COVID-19 situation in Syria looks so good. It's actually a dream that any country would like to uh, uh, reach right now. I mean, the official figures talk about only 146 cases so far. Only six people have died because of the COVID-19. That's indeed something that many countries would love to reach right now. But we have so many reasons why to doubt that these are uh, these figures actually reflect the reality of COVID-19 in Syria. First of all, we have the very low testing capacity uh, in all areas. And second, we know that authorities in control of the four different parts of Syria, they all have political reasons why to paint a completely different reality to the very grim one. Now, there have been several reports on COVID-19 in Syria, and they all rightly pointed out that after nine years of conflict and very high number of displacement, the country has the ideal conditions for the rapid spread of the virus. Uh, But there are also uh, very important reasons why policymakers need to continue to monitor the situation in countries like Syria. Despite these very low figures, which, by the way, many of the other conflict-affected countries also reporting very low figures, but we hear always about a different situation on the ground. And the reason is that actually the risk of uncontrolled and unmonitored outbreak in conflict-affected countries like Syria is not just a local risk. I mean, it could very well be the cause of a new COVID-19 outbreak to, uh, uh, the, the, and could make it persist globally for longer period and risk uh, new outbreaks. So we need to really closely continue to monitor the situation there. Now, in Syria, there have been so many challenges across the country in responding to the outbreak. I'm going to talk about the socioeconomic factors, and my colleague Mazen will talk about the institutional one. Now, nine years of conflict had led, indeed, to a sharp deterioration in the economic production. It led to ra- large destruction of the physical and financial capitals. Uh, this was accompanied with a surge in unemployment rate and poverty, including unprecedented level of poverty and hunger that we never, never, ever heard about. And it's getting worse every day. As we're talking now, the exchange rate of the Syrian pound is dropping down like a falling stone. And we are hearing for the first time time of people uh, uh, dying of uh, uh, malnutrition. Now, the conflict has also resulted in the uh, reallocation of the economic resources to serve the interest of the cronies and the de facto authorities on the expenses of the majority of the Syrians. The household income have dropped sharply. For example, the average salary was around 
2010, it's now less than $40. At the same time, when the average prices of goods and food have increased almost 30 times in 10 years. Now, this all made the authorities unable to compensate the economic losses because of any lockdown measures. And that resulted on them not being able to impose these lockdown measures for very long. Take, for example, the government-controlled areas. Uh, Initially, the government imposed very, very strict lockdown measures, even before any case was reported in the country. That was back in March. Uh, But very quickly, that led to very increased uh, 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 public pressure. I mean, we made some calculations about what is the expected economic loss of these measures that were imposed. And we think that it would have led, if they continued imposing these measures, to an instant 20% drop in the GDP and around 1 million Syrians who were employed by the private uh, 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 sector would have lost their jobs. Now, the government cannot afford this, not only for economic reasons and not because they are concerned necessarily about the well-being of their citizens, but this is all coming at a time where many other factors are contributing to the deterioration of the economy and the increased level of frustration. And this is going across the board in Syria. So it's hitting even the areas that have been traditionally seen as supporter of the regime and who the regime always tried to reallocate more resources to their areas to keep them happy. But this is hitting everyone across the board. It's increasing the anti-regime sentiments everywhere. And it it led to the voicing of this anti-regime sentiments in every area. So the regime cannot afford this, not right now, not more public pressure in a very, very delicate political situation. So very quickly, they just dropped down all the lockdown measures in a very unjustified way. And uh, the situation went back uh, to normal. So we have more reasons now to fear that there will be more spread of the virus. On top of that, we've got many other socioeconomic factors. I mean, we have the dropping down of the living conditions, including the access to clean water, to wash your hands. Uh, We have the high level of IDPs, the increased uh, number of people in one household, not to mention, of course, the high number of people detained in one cell in a detention center or a prison. On top of all of that, we have the fatigue, nine years of conflict. People are just tired and they actually they joke about response to COVID-19. They say that honestly, I mean, we were walking in the streets for 10 years now, dodging rockets and barrel bombs, uh, dropping from everywhere. We were risking our lives every day. You want us to fear this little virus? I mean, it's it's taken as a joke. You know, people are even unable to respond uh, to to the measures. And we've seen this in many areas in the Northwest, for example, where uh, um, there were many public campaigns to encourage people to take some protective measures. And the response to this was very, very weak. Finally, just to say a quick word on sanctions, because it's been brought up recently again because of COVID-19. And there were questions whether actually the economic sanctions imposed by the U.S., and the EU have contributed to the government's inability to respond to COVID-19. Now, the regime took this as an opportunity, and it's right now it's blaming almost everything on the sanctions. While this is absolutely uh, not uh, incorrect, 
we cannot blame everything on the sanctions, but it shouldn't actually stop us from asking whether the economic sanctions have uh, contributed to the economic collapse and whether they are actually paralyzing the health sector in Syria or part of the health sector and making it unable to respond to the many uh, challenges. We, uh, we published a blog on this recently, particularly on the impact of sanctions on the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and, you know, our view is that there is certainly a direct and indirect impact of the sanctions uh, on the pharmaceutical industry and on the industry that produce uh, medical equipment, on the ability to even import any medical equipment, even though there are no direct sanctions on them. There's so many reasons, I think, where we need to revisit some aspects of the sanctions, look for some uh, exemptions to help the country not only respond to COVID-19, but also to uh, um, just improve the situation of the uh, uh, the health s system in general. I'm going to stop here and pass over to my colleague, Mazen Bariba. Uh, thank you, Reem, and um, good afternoon, everyone. I will continue from where my colleague Reem has stopped and uh, to shed a light about the uh, institutional impact of COVID-19 in Syria based on the uh, ongoing research we are currently uh, conducting in CRP Syria team. I will mainly focus on three aspects, uh, coordination, uh, politicization, and uh, local responses. Um, now, when we talk about Syria, we have to distinguish between three governance systems or three uh, governance islands. We have the, uh, the regime-controlled areas. Uh, we have the northwest uh, 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 areas controlled by turkey Bad. Uh, opposition forces, and we have, of course, the uh, self-administration areas in northeast Syria. Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a, a growing assumption that the medical coordination would increase between these areas. And fortunately, the, the acute polarization of the Syrian conflict made this coordination nearly impossible. Each uh, uh, de facto uh, authority in each of these areas are implementing different sets of policies, measurements, and uh, response plans without any systematic way of uh, sharing information or data, uh, which have serious consequences on the spread of the virus since large population uh, movements are still happening between these areas, uh, especially with IDPs and returnees without any uh, uh, percussions or measurements. Now, the WHO is supposedly uh, taking the lead in the coordination between these different areas through its regional uh, health clusters. However, uh, uh, local health actors, specifically in areas outside of regime control and particularly in Northwest Syria, are raising multiple issues with the WHO response. So firstly, there's the lack of trust about the neutrality of the WHO uh, within the Syrian context. Uh, uh, many local health actors in opposition areas talk about the infiltration of the WHO Damascus mission by the state's patronage or clientelist uh, uh, networks. Uh, secondly, there is the problem of a seemingly slow response of WHO due to the politicization of the AIDS, mainly by the uh, Syrian regime. Uh, for instance, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, an official uh, WHO spokes spokesperson told the uh, New York Times that they only deal with Damascus because it's a government, whereas the other areas are not officially recognized governments, so... Uh, they uh, they don't deal directly with them. And this statement, in my opinion, shows a great deal of uh, uh, ignorance about the reality of the Syrian conflict and the polarization uh, of the situation there in Syria. 
Uh, uh, for instance, a health official in northwest Syria told us that uh, during our research that uh, uh, how can the WHO expect us to seek help in supporting our hospitals from a regime which was systematically bombing these same hospitals a month uh, or also uh, ago. So, and that leads me to my second point, which is the politicization of the COVID-19 in, in Syria. So all of the different uh, uh, de facto authorities in different areas of governments are politicizing the current pandemic at different degrees. The most dangerous and visible politicization is happening in the regime-controlled areas, where the intelligence forces are directly interfering with health policies, uh, threatening doctors and suppressing actual information and data, which has led to, to a state of panic uh, among civilians. We have spoken to several people in regime-controlled areas who told us that they, they'd rather seek discreet medical help from private doctors if they can afford it in order to avoid being questioned or harassed by the intelligent forces in, in, in public hospitals. Uh, in Northwest and Northeast, we have also reasons to believe that the governance and the de facto authorities there are also, uh, 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 to some various degrees, downplaying uh, the actual numbers of cases in order to appear in more control and to shape the media narrative and the public perceptions uh, uh, that their system of governance is more effective and efficient in comparing to the others. Um, especially when we see, uh, uh, as, as my colleague Reem said, when we see significantly no, low numbers of confirmed cases in areas which have dangerously low medical capacities, to uh, mainly due to a, a systematic bombardment of health facilities by the Syrian army and its allies, and the uh, uh, the lack of capacities and uh, uh, medical personnel and all of that. Um, and uh, quickly, uh, uh, I will jump to my last point, which is uh, the local responses in all of the areas in Syria. So uh, I will start with the areas outside the regime control. Uh, 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 in these areas, health response plans are implemented by, as I said, understaffed, underfunded local health actors. These response plans uh, are light, uh, uncoordinated, but they are relatively improving uh, over time. And we believe donors, international donor agencies, should should uh, um, uh, should uh, contribute more and, and, and could do more when it comes to this kind of uh, local responses. Uh, uh, um, uh, the CSOs have also implemented several public awareness campaigns and volunteering programs for first responders. However, the, the deteriorating security and economic situation are weakening the people's incentives to actually adhere to, to, to such measures and like social distancing, for instance. In regime control areas, also we've seen and documented several CSOs and local initiatives have also tried to assess the public health care systems and support the, the public during these difficult times. Uh, 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 but the economic collapse and the constant interference of the intelligent forces and the Syrian-led uh, uh, NGOs, the Syrian Gongos, have significantly limited the space for, just in, uh, for such uh, initiatives uh, to be effective, which also here we think that uh, the donor agencies and the wider civil society in Syria should also can uh, uh, um, support these kind of local initiatives and uh, 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 specifically in region control areas and of course in other areas in order to have a more of a, a coherent or consistent uh, kind of um, uh, local responses uh, uh, um, across the uh, uh, Syrian uh, uh, areas. I will stop here and uh, uh, I thank you for listening. Looking forward for the, uh, for the discussion. 
Thanks very much, Mazen. Um, so we already have a few questions coming through, but we're going to continue with the panel. So um, to hand over to Nisar now on Somalia. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Jess, and welcome to everybody. It's very nice to see such a good turnout. Um, I just wanted to say before I begin my substantive talk, I'd just like to respond uh, very quickly to, to some Twitter exchanges that have been going around uh, since last night concerning representation of Somalis on today's talk. So first of all, I'd like to apologise for the initial lack of representation. Clearly at the wider academic level and for the LSE as an institution, there are, there are critical issues that need addressing. From our more modest position within the Somalia programme of the CRP, we're also very aware of these issues and I'd just like to highlight that we collaborate with many researchers, many Somali researchers, men and women from different parts of the wider Somali region, several of whom can be found as authors and contributors on recent COVID-related blogs. So please do have a look at our website and you'll, you'll get a better understanding of that. And I'm pleased to say that Khalif is able to join us today. He and I are the core team uh, within the programme and we've both been discussing recently, in fact, how to deepen our Somali identity going forward in our, in our work. So that said, uh, concerning the substance of uh, my presentation and within a short 10 minute slot, I'm going to focus actually on the economic side rather than the health side and particularly on the role of remittances and the, and the Somali diaspora, which is especially important in the case of uh, Somalia. And it's something that we've been following through the different blogs that we've done over the last couple of months. And there are three main points I just want to highlight initially. Firstly, remittances from the Somali diaspora are tremendously important to the Somali economy and society, and the expected global reduction in this area is likely to have far-reaching effects in many different countries. In the case of Somalia, there are spatial and identity characteristics associated with remittance flows that are important to consider. And of also importance in Somalia is that we've seen two major famines within the last 30 years, the most recent of which was in 2011. Um, and this is of concern as these disasters have largely taken place in the south of the country, whereas remittances are more, more strongly associated with, with northern areas. So there's an important kind of policy and analytical point there, which I'll develop in a minute. The second point is the meaning, the means of sending money is complex in the case of Somalia, given that Somalia is not incorporated into the global banking system, as many other countries are. So the physical lockdown that's affected both flights and the movement of people within cities in my own, my own home city in Bristol have both had effects on the ability of people to transfer money and for remittance companies themselves to transfer money. And thirdly, the, the, the point I wanted to, uh, another point I wanted to raise is the kind of time frame in which we're trying to understand the impact of COVID-19. In the space of the last three months, we've gone from an initial shock in both health terms and economic terms to making some adjustments, but to still very unclear, an unclear process in terms of how we're going to emerge and what the immediate and medium term future looks like. And I'd like to reflect on that in, in an explanation of those three points. So just to, to backtrack slightly, remittances are the single largest source of development finance globally. And the latest estimation from the World Bank is that remittances are going to decline by 23% in the next uh, year. As a percentage of GDP, there are a number of countries where this source of finance makes up anything from 10, 20 or even 30% of GDP. Somalia is at the upper end of this scale with 20 to 30% of GDP coming from this source. And 
really illustrating that is that an estimated 40% of the population uh, are thought to receive this money directly and even more in terms of the indirect onward flow through through other people. And money comes in in different forms at the household level. Some people send and receive money monthly, some periodically during the year, some perhaps is known to come more in times of crisis. And then there are different combinations of these different forms of flows. And receiving remittances is also associated with improved access to credit. Uh, And this was particularly important in the 2011 famine. So beyond the household level, remittances are also a major source of investment in education, in health, in business, as well as in land and property. Um, So remittances, though, are not equally distributed within Somali society, and they're very much more associated with northern areas of the country, in Somaliland and Puntland, and to a certain extent, significant areas of central regions and Mogadishu and the urban centres. For northern and central regions, there is also a high reliance on livestock exports to the Gulf, and livestock is the most important source of uh, uh, export uh, in the in the country. An additional an additional shock, therefore, that we are expecting is that the Hajj in Saudi Arabia may be cancelled, or if not, um, it will have reduced numbers of people attending it, and that's that's a major kind of peak in the in the in the uh, income associated with livestock export. So that's another factor that's developing that the Hajj is due to take place at the end of July, and so the point here is, as we've reported in two of our blogs that focused on Somaliland and Puntland is that economic conditions have already tightened but need to be followed closely as as lockdowns do open up and as some level of economic activity improves. And there are different vulnerabilities emerging as as a result of these spatial and identity-based differences in the receipt of remittances. And and also different possibilities of providing support uh, in different parts of the country due to different security conditions. The second point I mentioned, uh, to elaborate on that, in terms of sending money, the limitations on movement of flights uh, to agencies and to people has played a big part in, uh, in, in, in the way that COVID has uh, played out. And it's actually complicated the understanding of the actual change in those flows. It's very difficult to have a good handle on how much remittance flows have been affected. Uh, and they're also changing people's behaviour. So there's been an interesting switch, particularly in the UK, to online platforms where uh, a majority of remittances are thought to have moved through the through physically, people physically attending the shops and the agents to give them money and that money is collected and then it's literally transported by flight to Dubai. Um, so that is, that's been difficult to get a handle on. It's also worth mentioning that the subject of remittances uh, and their importance to Somalia in, in economic and humanitarian terms is something that seems to be well recognised by international donor countries. And the UK and Swiss government did recently release a statement emphasising the importance that they place on removing any obstacles to the actual flow of remittances. Um, thirdly, and my kind of final point about the time frames that we are working within which i think is quite is is really interesting is that in trying to follow covid related events and repercussions within the crp uh, program 
um, where we've trying to tr been trying to, to keep a handle on these events and where we have good connections both in the diaspora as well as in different places within the, the, the wider Somali region. It's very interesting to note just how quickly things are moving. So clearly in the UK, as in many places, Somalis are amongst those in more precarious forms of employment. Of employment and some of those uh, forms of employment have completely collapsed. Some however have also been able to shift to new areas of the economy and particularly to the, the delivery sector if I can call it that. And um, I was also I was speaking to a friend actually recently who works in a local school where the majority of families are from the Somali community. And they were providing a lot of support initially in terms of food packages as well as in, in terms of financial uh, support, but uh, but in the last couple of weeks, that the need to support families has gone down already significantly, as government support, government financial support, has been uh, has been kicking in in this country, and that's something that we highlighted in our first blog on COVID is just to is the need to try to understand how the economic of Im impact was not only going to play out differently within Somalia, but was also going to play out differently within uh, populations within the UK and in the wider diaspora. So elements of the economy are opening up um, here in the, in the UK, in the West and in the region, and will continue to do so. But how they open up is still unclear. And how other factors such as the Hajj um, and the associated economic benefits of that play out are still very unclear and I think uh, those it's, that's quite kind of interesting to reflect on as we as we're all grappling with dealing with the uh, the, um, the the constantly changing or shifting um, COVID dynamics so I'll stop there actually with my 10 minutes thanks thanks very much Nisar very well timed um, moving swiftly on to Khalif yeah, hello everybody. Um, what I want is to add a few points to Nisari's presentation. Um, uh, and I'm not going to be bringing uh, totally new things. Um, I, I'll start with a point of um, remittances and the dependence of Somalis on remittances. Um, in our research for the 2011 famine, uh, we are finding that two things were very important, social connectedness and diversification. Uh, this, uh, when normally when there's drought, you, you, the drought doesn't affect people outside. But in here, we have COVID-19 affecting both population at home and also abroad. So the, the impact is actually much harder, even though it's still early days and we don't know how, how things will work out. So the social connectedness is uh, impacted. Uh, as well as also the diversification that helped a lot of people get out of bad situation. Somalia has been in civil war for 30 years now, almost. Uh, it's been 1991, early 1991 that I started. Uh, not the civil war, but the collapse of the state, actually. And since then, not legitimate money have been printed. So Somalia uses a dollar now. Um, that dollar... Uh, the, 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 uh, that dollar comes from two sources, normally from exporters, which uh, all other exports have almost stepped, other than um, the livestock export, which is still there, which is small compared to the money that comes from remittance. Uh, 
So this is, this is to show you how important the remittance is to Somalis. The remittance is actually where most of the money is coming in to Somalis using mainly the dollar now. It's a completely dollarized economy. Uh, the local currency almost doesn't exist. So um, the Somalis also depend on food from uh, external sources. So Somalis produce meat and uh, vegetables and fruits that they, they produce, but they, all, the, all, all the main uh, cereals, uh, which are mainly uh, wheat and uh, uh, rice, come from abroad. So rice come, comes mostly from India, Thailand, these rice-producing countries, uh, and pasta now mainly comes from Turkey, um, the, uh, also uh, uh, wheat flour. So the country actually does depend on imports and food, and if that money, that dollar is not available in the country, and there's no government that's supporting all these uh, uh, effects, uh, the country will need um, that money hardly. So if, it, if there's any problem with the remittance, the whole country will also have a, a food problem as well. Um, another point that I wanted to add is also uh, the internal remittance. Uh, in all the research of remittance, we always look at the remittance from outside. But if you look at remittance inside, remittances are again sent back to, to small families. So for example, uh, someone is working in town and sent to their family. There's no banking system, so they use a phone to send. Uh, that remittance normally is actually more than the external remittance. And this situation also impacts that remittance, and, and that's actually more crucial. Uh, these families normally do not have any savings, so they, they live on the edge and, and it's these families that are actually the most important. I don't know if there's anyone watching them, but you can understand that anyone who has a, a young guy or someone working in town and are living in village, they live in on that remittance, uh, that's internal remittance. Uh, it could be done on phone or actually in a normal remittance company. Um, so... Uh, Food security will be impacted as well. Um, and also uh, the, internal impact, uh, 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 the, the internal remittance is also impacted. Um, the money itself is impacted. The, uh, there could be a shortfall of money that people have. And uh, both social connectedness and uh, diversification, which the country have depended on so, so much, is all, are also impacted. Uh, it's also to be said that actually, okay, the impact now, uh, how much is it? Uh, it's still early days. So people still could, could depend on whatever, or large population could depend on whatever uh, savings they have. Uh, I'm hearing that people in uh, Western countries are still sending the essential money. So if you're sending like $600, you might send like $300, $400 for essential uses. Uh, that will have impact itself. Uh, but then if this continues until September, as we are hearing, the impact will get worse and worse, as we can see. Uh, I'll stop there now uh, and, and take any questions that come. 
Thank you very much, Khalif. Um, and thank you for your questions that are coming in. Um, we're going to turn now to Alex um, before we address um, questions to all of the panel. Um, Alex. So, thank you very much. Let me just raise one or two points which I think arise from this, from this discussion. The first is that um, the, the, the situations in Syria and Somalia are markedly different, but they're similar in a couple of respects. The first being that the, the COVID pandemic, the level of morbidity and mortality from the disease thus far, given everything, we, notwithstanding what we know about the inaccuracy of statistics, is a lesser factor than the actual impact of the COVID crisis. And the COVID crisis is primarily an economic and secondarily a, a political crisis. So it is the political, it is that COVID crisis that is really the focus of our, of our concern. And that crisis has a couple of different elements. One is particularly salient in the case of Somalia is the economic impact, which is externally driven in terms of the collapse of commodity exports, um, and the collapse of remittances. And I'm sure in, in, in Rima and Mazin didn't go into the details of that, but I'm sure that there are, are comparable elements there um, in, 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 in Syria. Now, for many of the ordinary people in both these countries, given the choice between the lottery of infection and the certainty of starvation, they would opt for the lottery of infection. They, 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 they don't see the, the virus as as being as great a threat as the other more immediate threats to their health and their, and their well-being and their survival. So why is it then that governments, political authorities, um, have adopted the, the lockdown strategy? Well, it, it, there's an element of political opportunism there in that it's a very good excuse for having repression and surveillance. It, um, and, 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 and this is a, a global phenomenon. Um, it's also a, a just a show of political muscle. It's the best thing to. It, it is the, the 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 internationally legitimate approach. This is how you get your standing internationally is by having a, a quick and resolute lockdown. But the actual rationale for the lockdown is not well explained, and therefore the rationale for lifting a lockdown is also not well explained. It's not possible for any of these countries to follow the the Chinese or the Singaporean model of a complete lockdown followed by a police state in which outbreaks of infection are scrupulously monitored and followed up. That can't be done here in the United States. It certainly can't be done in, 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 in Syria or, or Somalia, even though some of, um, some of the politicians might like it. Um, like it or not, the unpleasant reality is that the health capacity is simply not there to buy enough time with a lockdown to build up a health capacity to respond. That is a disagreeable truth. Um, so the European model doesn't fit. So, so why do it? And the, and, and the logic of doing it, the, the uh, third logic of doing it, is that there may be an opportunity for having a strategy for protecting the most vulnerable, the elderly, those with comorbidities, etc. Providing them with some form of, of social distancing so that they are not exposed um, to the virus. But none of, but neither of these countries, indeed, no, no country, um, um, has has systematically pursued this. So the 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 the, the lockdown strategy 
strategy has, in both these cases, merely compounded the economic misery and being, being become a pretext for, for, for political repression. And I think what is missing in throughout this is the element of local consultation, of asking people who actually understand the epidemiology of this. It's not difficult. They understand it relatively well, relatively quickly. What are the strategies that should be adopted that suit your particular circumstances to minimize the risk of, of, of infection among the most vulnerable and to minimize the the economic and the political negative ramifications uh, that the COVID crisis is bringing. Let me leave to that. Thank you very much. Um, thank you to all of you uh, and um, to all of the audience. Um, thank you for the questions you've posed so far. Um, we have until 2.30, so a, a good amount of time for questions. If you'd like to um, pose more questions, then please do remember to put your um, affiliation um, in the in the Q&A box uh, with a short question, and we'll try and cover as many as possible. Um, so uh, to start with, um, I'm, I'm going to uh, address a few questions to both the Syria and Somali um, participants on the on the panel. Um, so to the Syria team, um, we have a question from uh, Claire McPherson, who is the uh, DFID Syria economist, and she says that the World Bank has predicted a worldwide drop in remittances due to COVID-19. How do you th see this panning out in Syria? And related to that, um, last uh, Last week's currency decline seems to be more related to regional and political issues, for instance, in Lebanon and with Rami Makhlouf in uh, Syria, than to COVID-19. So what, to what extent do you think that the virus is relevant to the economic situation in Syria right now? Um, and I think either Reem or Mazen are very welcome uh, to address that. And um, just... Uh, in fact, maybe maybe we'll just take that question now and um, move on to Somalia afterwards. Okay, I'll take the first question. Um, yes, I think indeed the Syrian situation will be affected by the breakdown of remittances, uh, and it will be uneven across the country because we know some areas like Daraa, for example, relies more on remittances than other areas. Uh, but most recently the people's inability to receive any types of funds from abroad, including remittances, have been more heavily affected by other factors, uh, including the Lebanese banking crisis and uh, the Makhlouf-Assad uh, rift, which had affected the inability to transfer any funds to Syria, even through the unofficial Hawala route. So now, if you want to transfer through these routes, the first answer that comes well, we cannot. We don't even know what the exchange rate is going to be. Every is changing every half an hour, right? But where the virus impact comes in is the inability to uh, uh, go back and forth between Lebanon and Syria. So Lebanon became uh, the main. Uh, 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 let's say, port of call, not only for the regime and its cronies, but also for ordinary Syrians to get any money, whether from their own banking accounts in Lebanon or their relatives or various sources, you know, even from um, uh, the various uh, 
uh, Hawala system. So now they cannot go to Lebanon. So no money is flowing into the country. And how that has severely affected uh, nearly everyone in the country. And of course, may I just point something out? While we do point out rightly at the Lebanese banking crisis, but let's remember that Syria's inability to receive funds inside Syria directly, the reason why they relied so much in Lebanon is the economic sanctions and nothing else. Um, thank you. Mazen, do you, do you want to add to that in any way? Okay, great. So um, to, to the Somali um, team, um, we have a comment or a question from Aidan Hadil of the Ministry of Finance who asks that or points out that today is the 10th of June um, 2020 and the Somali government has officially opened the local and international flights. How does this contribute to the already weak health system in Somalia and the impact of neighbouring countries? Um, and also a further question on does Somalia have an effective COVID-19 strategic uh, policy response and what is the immediate socioeconomic impact of COVID-19? Somalia has kind of opened has opened up its flights. I mean, obviously, the effect of that depends as on, on who you can fly, where else you can fly to and who else has opened up their borders. And I know that Kenya hasn't. <laughs> but, uh, so... Uh, and, and right at the beginning of this, uh, at the co- of the COVID outbreak, one of one of the few responses actually that the Somalia government could make was to close down uh, domestic and international flights. But that's very much a function of you know of, of what's going on around it. So, so in principle, opening up uh, flights uh, could be considered a good thing from an economic point of view in terms of people. Uh, from the diaspora, even returning as they often do in the in the in the summer months, in fact, and and that provides a certain economic boost. But uh, as we also know, the the ability to uh, mon- to survey to monitor uh, the spread of the virus is very limited in places like uh, Somalia, and actually, it's very limited even in in, in my own country. I, I think people don't have a a strong sense that we will have a good idea about how the virus is playing out in the UK, and I'm sure that apply, that applies in many other contexts. Um, so, and I know from speaking to Khalif and to others, there's also a sense that perhaps the virus has 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 already peaked, has flown through the population, and it's not a priority for the majority of the population, and arguably. It, as uh, as Riemann Marzen was suggesting, it never really was, um, and it's really the the main response from a government perspective was was to close down flights and also to close down offices, um, and that has had had a, an economic impact. But it but Khalif in his latest blog actually pointed out that for the man in the street you have to think differently about how to respond to uh, if you want to try to um, um, uh, spread information on good practices in terms of social distancing. And Khalif uh, wrote a very interesting blog on how the government might work with religious leadership, actually, um, who have more influence uh, over people's behaviour. Uh, and so that was not something that was that was not something that was done very effectively. Um, I'll stop there. I don't know whether Khalif wants to add to that. Um, 
I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the strategy, actually. I think um, as elections are like in six months or seven months, or whenever they make it, actually, uh, both the opposition and government politicians are more interested in that election than uh, the COVID-19. So um, if you talk to all people and read everything, you cannot see any policy or any uh, strategical, tactical, whatever, concern over um, uh, uh, COVID-19. COVID-19 in Mogadishu, Kismayo, in, say, Johar, in many towns in Somalia, it's something that have, uh, is about passing. Uh, most of the population in Mogadishu, when you talk to them, they already had it. So they think COVID-19 have, have gone through the country and, and it's gone. But they are part of the country that still have not had the, the epidemic as actually a big thing. So, but people are expecting and saying that it's coming our way. So um, when they say they have opened the flights, I, I don't think what they, what they, what they would restrict Maybe new strains, yes, but there's nothing to 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 stop now. Most of the population have already had, or at least half of the population have already had it. Um, the government doesn't have uh, in all the 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 hospitals that they have, or makeshift hospitals that they have made in few towns are not used because there's no service there. So what's the point of going there? Uh, so um, I think the government kind of is irrelevant, apart from stopping the flights, uh, which the government will have, will have a lot of pressure, not from the uh, economic sectors or other sectors, but from the CAP users as well, uh, pressuring uh, to have that coming in. Um, so if the government uh, opens the airspace, I think they open it for the CAP not for anything else. And maybe for the politicians who want to go around, but then as Nisar says, well, what, what they can, uh, 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 where will they go? Because Kenya has not opened. And Ethiopia, you'll go to, to quarantine. And father, I feel, is even worse. So, um, I think that answers the question. Thank you. Um, to return to the Syrian team, um, we have a question from Abu Bakr, who is a student of MS Media and Communications at LSE, um, and he asks whether um, uh, are the low number of officially reported cases in Syria reflected in hospitals and other medical care facilities, and is the health system managing the real number of cases that may not have been reported but do still exist? Um, and also a question from uh, Jasema Mayed Azam Peregrino, who says the Constitutional Committee for um, Syria hasn't met in quite a few months. How do you think that COVID-19 is affecting this committee and the overall political process in general? Do you think that the regime will use the pandemic as an excuse to avoid reuniting again? Um, yeah, if I may, I, I'll try to answer um uh, both of these questions, um, to my best knowledge. Uh, well, f with regard to the first question, um, on I just want to point out that on the uh, 25th of March, uh, our team, CRP, uh, Syria team, published a, a paper called the COVID-19 Pandemic, uh, Syria's Healthcare uh, Capacity, where we actually measured 
what we call the maximum healthcare uh, capacity or the th- uh, maximum threshold uh, for the Syrian hospitals to to be uh, uh, to treat COVID nineteen patients. And according to our uh, 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 research and the data, the available data about ventilators and ICU beds and all of that, um, we've come with a number that. Uh, the Syrian healthcare system across all re- areas can only deal with 6,500 cases or around that number. Uh, and of course, these, this number, uh, there's a, a huge disparities between different areas. So for instance, in Damascus, which has the most kind of uh, advanced healthcare facilities in comparison to other areas, the maximum threshold is around 2,000 cases. And in Homs and, and, and Hama, for instance, less than 100 and in their resort, for instance, it's up, approximately zero. So they don't have ICU beds or any kind of uh, infrastructure to deal with any um, uh, COVID-19 cases. So, um, so that's when when it comes to the to to the capacity, we don't feel that anything changed since we published that paper. No new ventilators, or like no a huge numbers of new ventilators or ICU beds have been. Uh, um, uh, input in Syria. Uh, with, with, uh, with regard to the low numbers, um, it's, it's an information black hole. And uh, really, we, there's no way to actually have uh, a, a concrete or to have a, 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 a verified number of cases in all hospitals in Syria. I mean, it seems Northwest, there's more access to the numbers uh, not because there's more, they're, they're more transparent, but because there's the absence of a, a central uh, uh, um, authority to suppress uh, this kind of information in comparison to Northeast or the regime control areas. Uh, I hope that answers uh, the first question. As for the second question, which is the constitutional committee meetings and the peace process, um, I'm, I'm actually a, uh, a member of the Syrian Constitution uh, Committee. I'm, uh, I'm a member of the Committee on the uh, Civil Society Block. And I can say that um, I don't think uh, COVID-19 is a reason uh, um, for postponing these meetings. Actually, as, as Alex was saying, it's, it's more of a pretext to postpone any kind of political process uh, in, 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 in Syria. I believe that uh, uh, it has more to do with the absence of a consensus, actually, between the international guarantees, uh, mainly uh, Russia and Turkey. Uh, 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 and in my opinion, the political agreement between Moscow and Ankara when it comes to Northwest is still very fragile. So both countries don't want to risk the collapse of their agreements by pushing to uh, the continuation of the pro- of peace process. And also, of course, the regime is also using COVID-19 as a pretext because now the regime is in, 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 in a weak position and a weaker position compared in comparison to the beginning of the constitutional committee talks. And the regime is trying to postpone in order to avoid making any kind of uh, significant uh, uh, concessions. Thanks very much. Um, okay, we have two questions um, for Somalia. Uh, one from Mohamed Kamil, who is a London Metropolitan student, and he asks: Are there suggestions to ease the role of the role that developed countries could play to ease the role of remittances? Um, and another from Ahmed from Puntland State, who says: Somali banks and money transfer companies are experiencing a liquidity crisis. Do you have any suggestions on how to tackle this? 
Okay, I think they're both, they, yeah, they're similar questions. Uh, one from one of our friends actually in Puntland, and I can all only say I'm not an expert in the in this kind of in the financial sector, but I I can only say that. I'm aware because we're in contact with uh, with DFID, our donor, and I know that they are working with the U.S. Treasury and with other donor countries, and with the international financial institutions. And there's a very high awareness of the importance that where remittances are inevitably going to be reduced, that any obstacles to their to the, their continuation um, should be uh, removed or limited. And so I would just say that I, I think that is a priority and Somalia is considered a particularly important case uh, in that respect. And that, you know, these, these concern kind of complicated issues around the risk uh, appetite of banks um, and finding alternative routes. And I, and, and I think that these issues are being explored. And my latest conversation on this was that I understand that some of those liquidity concerns were being eased as, for example, flights to Dubai are becoming more possible. So I don't, I can't really say anything more than that, but I, I, from what I do know is that there is a lot of attention on this by those in, in, in the donor government and international financial institutions that are really trying to ensure that uh, that flows of remittances can continue. I think that, that answers both questions, actually, Jess. Yeah, actually, I just to add to that, we have a further question which is connected from um, Susan, Susan Wolfe, who's a retired historian. She asked how the recent um, events in Minneapolis impact the remittances. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak about Minneapolis in uh, in uh, specifically. One of the points that we raised in our first blog was that the uh, the, the the safety net mechanisms, the financial support that's been that's available in different countries, may be very important in how uh, the the financial impact, the economic impact, affects different. Um, uh, different diaspora populations on the basis that in this in the in America there is much less of a welfare state there are much uh, it, there is not that history and therefore the financial support that is starting to come in in places like in the UK that I was mentioning in my talk is not so available in in the states so it's possible and it's also possible to say that populations in certain countries or even in certain towns may be more associated with particular parts of Somalia than in other parts and I know that this that Somaliland for example has a has a, a long history from its colonial from colonial times to to the UK there's a large Somali diaspora in the UK and the, in, and therefore it's possible that the financial support that is being provided in the UK generally may uh, have an impact in terms of that that relationship those flows between the UK and Somaliland and perhaps in the US and the, the diaspora population there who have who may have connections to to different parts of the country may mean that different parts of uh, different groups are more affected because they have a greater connection to the states 
So these are kind of, and there is some research on this, but I can't say that we know very well the details about that. But there are certainly corridors uh, and connections between the diaspora in, in certain places and in certain parts of Somalia. Um, I, I just wanted to answer the question of the liquidity. Um, number one, I think if we wanted, um, if, if we're thinking about support, I think even the Western countries who used to support Somalia when there's crisis are themselves in crisis. So I expect there will not be a, a big support in that sense. However, in the um, uh, low, I mean, medium term, maybe easing the financial restrictions on Somali banks is also a good thing that, that, that will work. I say this because um, the restrictions of the Somali, on the Somali banks means Somali money is kept outside in Dubai and Oman in other countries. So if you're buying something, uh, 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 you normally cannot transfer money from Somalia to outside. That's because of the international uh, uh, finan financial uh, restrictions. So people keep money outside. If that was removed, I think it would have helped uh, a lot because uh, a big, bigger companies in Somalia all keep their money outside the country. Uh, I just wanted to add that. Um, thank you, Khalif. Um, so um, we have a question uh, for Reem and Mazen from Batu, who's an MSc student in LSE government, uh, who asks, given that Turkey has managed the crisis well relative to most countries, could a possible scenario be, be exporting the Turkish national health infrastructure to Turkish controlled areas in the north, for instance, considering testing, tracing and forced isolation? Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, thank you for that question. Actually, it's it's uh, it's somehow already happening. So, uh, in in the Turkish uh, controlled areas, uh, or when we look at the northwest, actually, they have two kind of uh, policies uh, because you have in Idlib, for instance, policies are mainly implemented by the Idlib Health Directorate, which is part of this year interim government. Uh, however, in the Turkish uh, controlled areas in Northwest, they are following the uh, health policies of the Turkish Ministry of Health. So, for instance, most of the samples, not all, uh, of suspected cases in the Turkish uh, uh, controlled areas, they don't, um, uh, they're not sent to Idlib. They're actually sent to Ankara. Uh, uh, um, uh, so so there, there is that kind of interference. Uh, however, also from our kind of uh, observations, we've noticed that mainly... Uh, the uh, direct uh, interference of the Turkish uh, health authorities are concentrated around Turkish military bases rather than uh, the wider kind of uh, uh, population in the areas uh, where they control. For instance, there were uh, some uh, news and unconfirmed sources uh, of um, uh, Turkish soldiers with confirmed COVID-19 in, in Afrin, for instance, with additional uh, uh, citizens However, we haven't seen any kind of uh, a broad or a, a wider uh, testing uh, uh, or, or um, um, uh, medical kind of uh, interference with the wider population unless it's concentrated around the Turkish military bases. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, so... Uh 
A question from Abdullah Allahan, um, who says, what kind of opportunities does uh, COVID provide to humanitarian and development partners to re-examine and rethink assistance models in Somalia? Has there been any collaboration amongst the various constituencies of Somalia? Um, and that's to Avernis or Khalif. And I should mention that we have had um, a few uh, comments throughout the Q&A about the, the issue of representation, which I know Nassar has already um, dealt with. But if you would like to add anything to that, then. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. Yeah, no, I mean, I, we, you know, we'd like to acknowledge that the that for some people, they are raising the, the issue of representation. And, and I've tried to uh, address that in my comment and we've tried to address it in the panel. And, but we have substantive issues that we would like to discuss here and it's not really something that we feel that we we can go into now um but i think that uh, the the question that about re-examining the aid models i think is fantastically interesting and um important and and khalif and i could talk about this for quite a long time because we've done a lot of work on looking at some of the um some of some of the deep-rooted political economy of, of of Somalia of aid in Somalia issues, which go back thirty or forty years, and which uh, are one of our latest pieces of work uh, by that came out called Food and Power: Business as Usual in Somalia a few months ago, which was which was raised some very difficult issues, and for which we went on a tour to Nairobi and to Mogadishu. We had a lot of different groups of uh, participants that we were talking to about how the role that aid can play in exacerbating inequalities in Somalia, uh, about how aid is captured and instrumentalized for political and individual interests. So I think it's it's a big it's a big topic. It's something certainly close to the heart of Somalia uh, of a Khalif and myself, who and Khalif on the ground in Somalia experiences it directly in the types of conversations that he has with uh, local populations and the need he that the, the efforts he has to get go to to talk frankly with people uh, um, about about the rea the reality and the difficulties that they see with aid. But I think also, I mean, I would be interested, Alex would easily be able to talk about this as well, is that reforming the aid system is, it, it, you know, it's a very uh, cumbersome machine and there are repeated efforts at reform. And one of the latest efforts has been called um, Better Aid in Somalia, actually, that, has been, that, that, that was designed um, to... To, to address, to and accept and acknowledge the political economy of aid in Somalia. Um, but to, to seriously address that is, is a very long-term uh, process. Um, and it's frankly difficult to know where to, to start. <laughs> um, I don't know whether Alex would like to uh, add anything on that. Sorry, Alex. <laughs> You're on mute, Alex. Alex? It's just a huge question, and I think, but I think it is absolutely fascinating how the the whole COVID um, crisis is un, is giving a, a, a revitalizing a 
whole no number of different aid agendas, including the localization agenda. The very fact that the that aid is very so much been an, an an internationally run business, and 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 the the shutdown in the ability to travel of 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 the international aid apparatus and the assumption of responsibility for so much by those who are local is actually a great opportunity and 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 and, and let's let's seize that and 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 work with it Okay, thank you, Alex. Um, going back to uh, Riemann Mazen, um, a question from Nicholas Haslam of Adam Smith International, um, who asked, has the C19, has C19 altered the prospects for local peace deals and reconciliation in the northwest of Syria and retaken parts of Syria like Dara due to the increasing influence of local NGOs and councils? Um, or do you think that the uh, military push in the northwest will continue anyway? Um, oh yeah, thank you, thank you, uh, uh, Nick, for the question. Um, personally, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit uh, pessimistic when it comes to um, a local peace and reconciliation and uh, uh, the uh, temporary uh, cessation of hostilities. Um, at the beginning of the uh, COVID, uh, there was a, a kind of a, a call from the special envoy to Syria and from the, general, the UN General Secretary of a, a temporary uh, uh, cessation of hostilities in Syria, which back then I believe it's not going to hold. And uh, I believe it only was reduced kind of um, uh, military escalations for the first three weeks of the pandemic. But then... Um, military operations and escalation started to also kind of gradually uh, 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 returning to their uh, pre-COVID uh, 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 era. I, I believe uh, 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 the regime uh, uh, will continue with the uh, escalations, the missile escalations in northwest uh, uh, Syria. Um, uh, uh, especially that the uh, it seems that as I said the the Russian Turkish agreement is still is, is, is fragile, and the regime is uh, um, is in a weaker position, uh, and every time the regime is pushed in that corner, they usually escalate their military operations uh, in order to kind of uh, uh, have a better negotiation positions in the Geneva process. Um, so I believe that's what's going to happen. Uh, in the next uh, few months. Uh, as for Dara and Sweda, uh, as you can see now, there's kind of a, a political unrest. There's a, a popular uh, movements and uh, protests in the streets again. Uh, but it was, I think, uh, when it comes to Sweda, it's the largest kind of demonstration since the beginning of the uprising in 2011. Um, but also, I'm, I'm, I'm personally quite pessimistic, and I think the... Uh, these uh, 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 beautiful demonstrations, uh, which uh, uh, expressing the frustration of the political regime, and as you can see, they're not actually directed at the economic situation. They're, they they have political demands. They have strictly political demands and the downfall of the of the regime. They're not talking about the economy. They're not talking about the uh, 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 the livelihood. That they they have. It's like very well articulated political demands. However, I don't think that will also change. Uh, the dynamics on, 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 on southern Syria that much. Uh, I believe the regime would uh, continue with, uh, uh, with the heavy-handed uh, response 
uh, to any uh, kind of uh, uh, movements uh, in, in Syria. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm um, I'm being too pessimistic, but uh, that's that's how I how, how I read the the situation. Thank you, Reem. Did you want to add anything to that? No, I, I have nothing to add. I think Mazin. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, so a question from. Um, um, Mohammed Youssef, uh, from, who's a student at London Metropolitan University and LSE. Some economists have been pointing out the sustainability question of remittances fo following to Somalia, to Somalia from second generation. Um, this, sorry, the second generation of small diaspora may not be as inclined to send remittances to relatives in Somalia as their parents, which is going to be a, a, a block on economic growth trends. Um, do you think that is the case? Khalif, would you like to uh, to go first in answering that? Yeah, um, that's true. Uh, my uh, second generation does not know uh, as many Somalis as the first generation know um, and is not inclined to send any money back. But I think unless the Somali situation gets better uh, in one way or another, it's, it's the security, the economy, well, they'll, be keep, they'll keep sending more uh, refugees to the West. So uh, those new ones... Uh, who are not coming probably to UK now, but are coming to the rest of Europe, will continue uh, sending money back. So it's either uh, if if the fellow stops, it means um, Somalia is getting better, so the need for remittance is getting less. But also, um, but if if the situation doesn't get better, then they will be sending new people um, to keep the remittances up. Very bleak. I, very bleak. I, I, I think, to, you know, to add to that, there is also, I know, some, some of the literature just does talk about how ties, uh, transnational ties are renewed over time. So where, so as, as Khalif starts to take his uh, kids more regularly back to the region, they will, uh, they will get to know their family in person. And those, 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 those ties can be, um, reinvigorated or there can be reconnections made and that is that is the reason actually why some people do take them back but obviously that uh, is not to suggest that at a more general level there can be a weakening of those ties over over large numbers of people if then if, if if they're not actively uh rejuvenated or reconnected Thank you. Um, so from Mohammed Al-Abdallah, who is from the Omran Center for Strategic Studies in Turkey to Reem and Mazen, do you think that there will be a loosening of the sanctions imposed on the Syrian regime if the number of case, cases of COVID-19 increase in the area? Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, we've already seen some relaxation recently by the European Union. But uh, very sadly, while we were actually calling before that for relaxing, particularly the sanctions that affect the overall economy, that hit the ordinary people, not the sanctions that hit the uh, chronic capitalists, those who are very close to the regime. But what we've seen is actually relaxing on the sanctions, particularly on the individual's who are close to the regime under the pretext that those are the people who can sign in the big contracts and allow the aid to flow into uh, the country. So in a way, 
the relaxation that took place is going to empower those who are already dominating uh, the the uh, economy. We really hope that any next step to be taken to uh, to improve the lives of the ordinary people, uh, those who are unable to receive remittances, those who are you know don't have proper hospitals to go to, um, uh, those who cannot. Now there is a medicine crisis, for example, in the country. Uh, so uh, relax the sanctions that affect the the uh, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, things like that. And that doesn't have to be only uh, tied to the numbers of the COVID-19 because the situation is extremely bad with, with COVID or uh, uh, without it. We have almost the same number of people dying in Syria because of the collapse of the healthcare system as the number of people dying directly because of the violence. Thanks. Thank you very much, Reem. Um, so uh, just a comment from um, Abdelkader Ismail, who says that it's not a question, but just wanted to comment that um, in Somalia that the um, has a limited old age uh, population. So the elderly are limited number in Somalia, which um, probably reduces the general number of deaths in Somalia. And actually, I know that was the case also in Syria, that there is a relatively young population. Um, and I'm sure that's something that the panelists have addressed in their work. Um, so uh, one question that um, comes from um, Mohammed Tawfiq uh, to all of the panelists. Um, so are Syria and Iraq and Somalia, so let's just stick with Syria and Somalia, fragile, failing or failed states? And uh, what impact does COVID-19 have on their status? Uh, so maybe we'll take, who wants to volunteer? Yeah, um, Syria. I mean, the, the situation really uh, varies dramatically in Syria between different parts. In some parts, we have complete uh, state failure. Uh, we have uh, like a pseudo-state type of government, uh, like, for example, the self-administration areas in the northeast. Uh, uh, the government-controlled areas, you have partial failure of state. Even within those areas, it, var it varies um, uh, considerably between different part of the country. So, I, I mean, I guess it's it's an interesting question in the sense that um, the epidemics are not normally considered to be part of the criteria for measuring failed or fragile or failing states, and they are ambiguous terms in any case. So, I mean, it's quite interesting to see how that factors in with the dynamics of conflict and strained economies. Um, does any of the other panelists want to come in on that question? I think was... Alex, I'm sure we'll have something to say. <laughs> or Nisar, sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, I mean, so Alex, I think we'll go after me. As with Syria, you know, Somalia is a. There are there are different areas. I mean, there are that Somaliland and Puntland have been autonomous uh, regions uh, with you know, important elements of, uh, of, you know, functioning governance for since the, since the late nine since the mid to late nineties, uh, Southern Somalia is in a very different position with pockets of territory held by a combination of government forces and international forces. So generalizing over the whole country is it is itself problematic. And as you say yourself, Jess, those terms that are also rather ambiguous, but maybe, uh, Alex will illuminate us further. Okay, two points. One is there's a very interesting piece of 
intellectual policy history in the United States and, and in the academy around this, which is that when the whole failed and fragile states paradigm was first developed in the, in, in the 90s, health and demography were absolutely at the center of that. And that is for a, a, a very interesting historical reason, which is that it was the demographers who were studying health in, in the USSR, who in the 1980s were the ones who foresaw the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, nobody else did, but they did, because of the, the, the health and, and demographic indicators. And so when the State Failure Task Force was set up, by Al Gore in 1995-1996, health was, was in there, which actually led to the first US presidential decision directive on pandemic threats in 1997. But then the two sort of parted company, and, 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 there's, a, and there's an interesting, I mean, I, I won't take us down this particular rabbit hole, but it's a very interesting question about where pandemic preparedness was situated vis-a-vis the fragile states discourse in the US political and security establishment because they went there different ways. They sort of came back together after 9-11 in, 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 in an interesting way. But the, the other point I wanted to make is that there's an, another key intersection which is less applicable to Somalia and, and Syria, but is highly relevant to, to um, Iraq and to South Sudan which is that COVID-19 has accelerated the energy transition, the collapse in oil markets, means that fragile oil producers, and I would put Iraq in that category, have essentially lost their income. Their their, their, their revenues have collapsed over the last three months. And that has an enormous cascade effect on the, not only the the economy, but also on the political sustainability of regimes that rely on on oil money to sustain their patronage systems. Thank you very much. I think that's actually quite a good note to to wrap up on. Um, Thank you so much to all of our panelists. If anyone has any final points, then uh, speak now. Um, But uh, otherwise, um, thank you everyone for taking time out of your day to join us. Um, It's been a pleasure to welcome your uh, questions and um, I hope that you can join in further events in this series. The next one is at 1pm on the 15th of June and it's six political philosophies in search of a virus, critical perspectives on the coronavirus pandemic. So you can register for that online. Um, thank you again to uh, Reem and Mazen, Nisar, Khalif and uh, to Alex for joining us and th- thanks to everyone else.